Well, we're going to continue in our um, series, and we've reached the book of Exodus. And tonight, the title for this study is Exodus as the Pattern for God's Redemption. Exodus, the Pattern for God's Redemption. Last time, um, we examined the importance of Moses in the revelation of God's plan of salvation. And we spent most of the time talking about the mode and the manner of the, or the way God communicated with his people during the Mosaic period. But I want tonight to begin to focus on the content of what God unfolds uh, in this period, this Mosaic period. Perhaps the most important truth God teaches us in this book of Exodus is what he teaches us about the nature and characteristics of redemption through what we read in this book of the of Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. Put in the in the most basic terms, the Exodus, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, is a type of Christian salvation. That's really the whole talk tonight but I just want to break it down a bit for you the danger I find though is, and I think I've said this before is that as soon as you use the word type um, everyone then just thinks you're talking about a picture or something that isn't really real or an allusion to something that is actually real and comes later on well that would be a misunderstanding Types in in the Bible are real events in that time, real people in that time, which have a greater meaning. Um, They are fulfilled in the anti-type, in the in the fulfilment, often later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But they they don't only prophecies. Types are like, they're like a a model or a shape. They mould the future event. And what I'm really saying about Exodus as a type of salvation is that it was a real and actual redemption at the time, but which shapes and models and gives characteristics to the greater redemption that we have in Christ in the New Testament. To the Old Testament believer, the Exodus was their redemption. Put simply, although the Exodus is a type of future redemption and a much greater one, both are actual and real redemptions. So please don't, when I say type, Please remember that the Exodus was a real redemption. It was God-planned, God-given and God-implemented. It was a real salvation of a chosen people. Um, It was, a we might say, a first-level redemption. It wasn't the same as the redemption in Christ, but it was a real redemption. And that redemption in the Old Testament, the Exodus in the Old Testament shapes and models the future redemption in Christ. 
like the Christian sings to God of salvation through the cross, the Old Testament saints sang to God of salvation through the Exodus. And this began straight away. Um, In Exodus 15, verse 1, uh, it reads, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. So the old covenant, like the new covenant, has a, has a factual basis. It's not just words or philosophy. God's covenants are always built upon the, a real and, and an actual salvation in history. Wrought for us by him. That is the basis of every covenant of God. And the new covenant, which has now replaced the old covenant, has a, an inner coherence with the old covenant exodus redemption. They both have the same purpose, for God to save his people with a real redemption. And once we lose that focus, I'm talking now about the church today, we're doomed. And the church is doomed if we ever lose, as we seem to be, the understanding that our faith, our very faith is built on a real and an actual redemption event wrought on our behalf by God historically, actually not metaphorically but really and there is no transformation or reconciliation or reconstruction or restoration all the buzzwords of the evangelicals today Without whatever those words mean, and I'm not sure I even know what they mean, or what people mean by them, all I know is that first, without redemption of sinners from sin into a glorious freedom of the kingdom of God, there is no reality to this Christian faith. Once we define salvation in terms of ideals or in terms of social science or we spiritualise it away or we make it a, a political thing, the whole point and power of Christianity is gone. Because what's unique about Christianity uh, is that God redeems, God saves. The church's whole response to God has to be on the understanding and in a sense in the, in the atmosphere that we find in the words of Exodus 20 verse 2 when God gave the law before or as he gives the law he says I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage And you know, true religion, true piety comes from a grateful response 
to God from a redeemed people who have actually experienced a real redemption. And you do wonder, don't you, how many Christians in many churches have ever really known that? And you can't be grateful for something you haven't received or or sought. These Old Testament believers even, not, not even talking about the New Testament believers, they felt and knew the fact that God had saved them from the Egyptians. That it was his personal work, his personal effort, God's activity. And, um, well, there's some, a wonderful couple of verses in chapter 19 of Exodus, verses 3 and 4, which just emphasises this personal attention that God gives to those who he redeems. It says, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. And you and I in the new covenant, who have been redeemed with a far greater redemption than the redemption from the Egyptians, You know, what personal care, what personal attention. We were born by God on eagles' wings and he brought us to himself. We could never have done it. He he did it. Uh, This personal love and care of God. So I just wanted to emphasise the reality, the realism of this Exodus redemption. But as I said at the beginning, its main value to us today as Christians is its value in terms of progressive revelation or its function as a type of Christian salvation. In many ways, the exodus is the pattern from which the full clothing of the New Testament redemption is made. There is a discernible exodus pattern in the New Testament and indeed in the rest of the Old Testament. In the the exodus, God revealed more clearly than ever before principles of salvation which regulate the pattern of all future salvation. This began and progressed in the Old Testament so that these exodus principles of salvation were already embedded in the life and thought of Israel. So when the New Testament apostles came to preach the redemption through Christ, um, what did they turn to? To explain this redemption in the Lord Jesus. They turned to the language and thought and the pattern of the redemption from Egypt. In the gospel, Christ comes into the world and redeems his elect people through the supreme act of salvation on the cross. But how was this to be explained to the world? How was it to be preached? How was it to be interpreted by the early church? 
where there was this exodus pattern of thought and language ready to hand, which was used to interpret the work of the Messiah. Religious concepts and thoughts don't just come out of thin air. They take centuries and centuries of God drumming into the minds of his people patterns of thought and ideas. And and God in his providence and sovereignty did that so that there was a dictionary, there there was a language that would make sense when the cross needed to be preached uh, this greater redemption and this is plain and obvious from the terminology that the apostles use in their teaching language such as redemption redeem, deliverance ransom, purchase talking about the slavery of sin and freedom from sin these are all terms straight out of the story of Exodus and we could usefully concentrate on that tonight but we don't have the time what I want to do for the time remaining is is to very briefly look at these shaping principles concerning redemption which God reveals in the Exodus event and which today enable us to understand the New Testament Gospel. I'd go so far as to say that these following things I'm about to say, um, if any Christian minister does not include these elements, which we're about to consider, then he's not teaching the true Gospel of Christ. I don't mean in one single sermon, because you can never put everything in one single sermon, but over time, Um, over the course of a gospel ministry these following three things I think are essential elements of what the gospel really means what redemption really means so the first thing the first point I want to make and what we learn from the Exodus story is that Christian salvation is deliverance from foreign bondage. Christian salvation is deliverance from an alien or a foreign bondage. And we all know the story of Exodus. Israel was in bondage to Egyptian power. And this Egyptian power is in itself typical of the fact that when a person becomes a true Christian, they are delivered from, from an objective realm of sin and evil. Like the, the Egyptians, the unbeliever is enslaved to a foreign power. And in our presentation and witness of the gospel, we must include that point. I'm not saying it's the only point, but we must include it at, at times at least. Salvation is not totally about our inward, internal and individual sinfulness. That's a massive part of it. But it's also salvation from this objective, enslaving realm, satanic realm of sin and evil.
unbelievers, you and I, outside of Christ, needed to be cut loose and delivered from an objective system of evil. The world opposed to God, all the principalities and the powers that objectively exist, not inside of us, but outside of us. And which, like Pharaoh, exploit us and hold us in harsh bondage. To be saved, in Christian terms, is to be emancipated from slavery. The language of, of Exodus is, is on the surface of, of Paul's remarks in Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Well, that's Exodus, isn't it? That's the new exodus in Christ. There is this enslaving power that holds all unbelievers in bondage. And it's a harsh bondage. Exodus 2.23, the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Outside of Christ... The unbeliever is in a state of spiritual slavery to a real objective enemy and is in desperate need of deliverance. We need to present that when we present the gospel. Writing to the Galatians, Paul said in chapter 4, verse 8, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. They were previously serving demons associated with idols. Didn't know it, of course, but they were. In the Exodus account of Israel's bondage, Pharaoh is presented as the head of a kingdom of evil. There is a demonic background to the whole story of Exodus. Israel was a slave to a harsh and cruel and hard and evil power. And it was malignant. It was, it was, a, it was a, a, a power that was out to hurt and to destroy. The deliverance from Egypt was more than just deliverance from the hard labour and the impossible work schedule. It was deliverance from a whole realm of paganistic idolatry, a whole world of evil. The Lord through Moses was not just fighting the Egyptians, he was fighting their gods. And God said that in our, in our reading earlier in chapter 12, 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You know, don't, do not think Satan was trying his best to, to stop this deliverance from happening. Satan was opposing it at every hand, just as he opposed Christ, as he achieved an even greater exodus through the cross. God was fighting against the gods of Egypt. 
the commentaries tell us that every plague God brought on Egypt was an attack on, on one or other of their deities, their pagan deities, or at least their, one of the pagan practices of the Egyptians. Scholars have noted that the Nile, for example, turning into blood was a divine judgment on Osiris, the god of the Nile. And so you could go on through all the plagues. I won't do it for the sake of time. And so we must give due weight to the fact that the unbeliever is a slave, spiritually speaking, to a pagan, evil, malignant realm of evil. He's a captive, a prisoner, a slave who needs to be set free. Of course, they don't know it often. But the only way for them to be freed from their slavery is the gospel, is the Exodus gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now the Bible teaches that there is only one God, with a capital G, our God, who is in control of the world. But it also teaches that there is a God with a lowercase g, who is the God of this world, the God of this age, Satan. His power, of course, is limited. It's time limited. But Satan uses his lies and deception to control unbelievers. In this age, he is the God of this world. And Satan, the God of this world with a, with a small g, I want to emphasize that, is controlling and shaping philosophy, education, politics, the media, and all the false religions. He's the God of this age. We mustn't overemphasize the power of Satan because the Lord God is still sovereign and it's only through God's wisdom that Satan is allowed to operate in this world at all. We learn from the early part of the book of Job that God is the one who always sets the parameters for Satan. He sets the boundaries of his authority. So we mustn't as Christians overemphasize Satan but nor should we underestimate his power. He is a limited being, of course. He can only be be in one place at once. He's not omnipresent like God. He doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient like God. He is a creature, not a creator. On the other hand, he is a powerful enemy because he has a powerful army. He has billions and trillions, no doubt, of demons with whom he sends on missions to destroy and and destruct. He has significant capabilities and significant resources. So we need as Christians neither to emphasize, overemphasize or underemphasize Satan. Remember he is a creature. We speak of being tempted by Satan as if he can be personally present in all the homes of every Christian all at once. He can't do that. Um, 
He can only be he can only be in one place at one time. But he has hordes of demons. We give due weight to what scripture says says. Satan has power in this age and this world system. Ephesians two verse two wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So note two things from Ephesians two two. The, the unbelievers are subject to this evil prince. But for the Christian, this is something that was true, but is no longer true. It says, wherein in time past. For the Christian, this is history. We need to remember that. Believers, you and I, are no longer under the rule of Satan. We've been delivered from slavery. From that objective world of sin and evil. We have been delivered from the power of darkness. And and we have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. And we need to live that way. And think of ourselves that way. And so this concept, this language. Even to understand such things requires the Old Testament exodus as the pattern of thought which enables the redemption in Christ to be explained. The church, you and I, are commissioned to preach this message. Like Paul, we are sent to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. It's important, isn't it? We're sent to turn them from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith in me. That's the first pattern Exodus sets for redemption in the New Testament. The second is that Christian salvation is deliverance from sin. The Exodus is the story of a people not only delivered from an external foreign enemy, but they were also delivered from inner spiritual pollution and degradation. You see, true religion, I believe, almost vanished amongst Israel at this time. They still retained enough knowledge of God to understand from Moses that Yahweh was the God of their fathers but Israel had almost become pagan whilst in Egypt we know this from scripture Joshua 24 verse 14 looking back at that time says now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this irreligion in his prophecy. Ezekiel 23 verses 8 and 19. Neither left she her whoredoms brought from Egypt. Where did Egypt bring Israel get her whoredoms from? Uh, From Egypt. She learnt them there. She carried them from there. Yet she multiplied her whoredoms 
in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. And so it's no wonder that um, through the wilderness in Israel displayed her corrupt state. She'd become corrupt in Egypt and she carried that corruption through the wilderness. They worship the golden calf. They complain. They apostatize. Leviticus 17.7 speaks of their wickedness that they could only have learnt in Egypt. Verse 7 of that chapter. And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils after whom they have gone a-whoring. Israel learnt sacrifice to devils from the Egyptians. And so Exodus, acting as this pattern for what redemption is, informs the New Testament teaching that sin also is spiritual slavery. We're slaves to the external satanic world, but we're also slaves to this internal sin and degradation within us. Redemption is deliverance from sin into freedom from sin. I know I'm speaking very basically and simply, but these these are the main points of the gospel. And we discern this idea very clearly in the words of our Lord in John 8, 33 to 36. Try and hear the Exodus story in these words. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And the New Testament makes a lot of this aspect of deliverance from slavery, from sin. And you and I would be much happier as Christians if we lived in the good of that reality. We're not only delivered from the objective world, the objective power of of evil, we are delivered subjectively from the dominion of power and bondage of sin. We really are. And we mustn't be defeatist. Now sin, we know, remains in the Christian life. It remains in the Christian body. But the power is broken. We are no longer under the rule and under the slavery. We're no no longer under Pharaoh. We've been made free from sin and we we were slaves. We're no longer slaves. We were in bondage. We're now free from sin. Do we live like that? Do Do we see ourselves in that way? That's a reality of you and I if we're Christians tonight. It seems to me that many of us are happy with Romans 8.1 to say that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But we don't seem to go on to chapter 8 verse 2. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Why why don't we read verse 2? You know, we are delivered not just from condemnation, but also from the power of sin. Too many of us, I believe, I may be wrong, but my experience is that too many in the Reformed tradition underestimate the role and importance of the Holy Spirit. And this is why so many seem to fall back into a craven fear and a joyless view of the Christian life. You and I will have no meaningful Christian life unless we are subject to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You and I are freed from bondage. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's you and I. And so Christian salvation, dear friends, is deliverance from sin. It's deliverance first from Satan and his power and his world of evil. It's deliverance from sin. But it's also, thirdly, Christian salvation is a divine act of sovereign grace. This is the other pattern which Exodus sets for New Testament redemption theology. The Exodus redemption is everywhere presented as God's work and God's initiative. God brings his power to bear directly against the powers of Egypt. As far as I I think I'm right in saying, Moses is the first person in history to be given the power to work miracles. Is that right? I think it is. God divides the waters of the sea. It's God's work. When Moses tries to do it himself at the beginning... By slaying that Egyptian, it all goes horribly wrong. He ends up in failure. He has 40 years of humbling. But later he comes back in the providence of God. And what's, what's Moses doing? He's forever saying to God, I'm not, I, I haven't got the gifts. I haven't got the speech. I, I can't do this. A very different attitude, isn't it? Now God made him dependent on God. Salvation is of the Lord. Even Moses had to learn that. Although he uses human instruments, it's God's work. Exodus 6 verse 6, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you it out of their bondage and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments I, I, I it's God's work he's redeeming his people and I repeat that it was not the case that the Israelites were all pure and innocent and the Egyptians were the only ones worshipping idols it's a matter of pure grace that the Egyptians were judged And the Israelites were spared. 
Exodus 8.23, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. They were both committing the same sins. But God puts a difference between his people and the Egyptians. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue. Against man or beast. That ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Dear friends, that's true of our salvation too. God has put a difference between you and the world. That difference will is now. It will become ever so clear at the second coming when we will be taken up to be with the Lord and, uh, and there will be a massive difference between how God treats us and how he treats the unbelievers. It will be too late for them then. God's already put the difference now. The difference will apply then. And it will apply through all eternity. When we, God's people, are in the new heavens and the new earth for eons of eternity. Unbelievers will be in eons of eternity, but in a different place altogether. A place of everlasting punishment. God's put a difference. And then lastly... As we close, and importantly, under this same heading, Exodus reveals that God can only exercise this grace. He can only make this difference if there is an accompanying atonement. It's all on the basis of the, of the sacrifice of atonement. A substitutionary, atoning sacrifice of a lamb had to be in place in order for the Lord to pass over the houses of the Israelites. And the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you when I smite the land of Egypt. Sometimes this verse is, is, is preached almost as if the blood was some kind of um, identification system for the, for the Lord to know who, where his people were. The Lord knew who, where his people were without that. The, the, the value of this was, the significance of this is that this blood was derived from an atoning sacrifice. Exodus 12, 26, And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. Well, this, this is all things you know. We can easily see how these aspects of Exodus shape and pattern the New Testament redemption in Christ. The gospel is God's act of sovereign free gate, free grace, whereby he provides the Passover Lamb of God. Jesus fulfills the Passover. He came to Jerusalem that final time, not just to attend the Passover, not just to celebrate the Passover, but to become the Passover. Salvation, Christian salvation, is through substitution, 
the substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Behold the Lamb of God, Scripture says, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, a mature male, none of his bones were broken. He was thoroughly examined and found spotless. And the Lord Jesus was slain for our sins. And you and I I tonight are redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed and God can say to you and I, when I see the blood, I will pass over. I will pass over you. He has passed over you and I if we're Christians. But I'd say this last thing in closing. It wasn't enough for hear this. It wasn't enough for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. The blood had to be applied to the individual door. And so have you come to Christ? And have you asked him to apply the blood of Christ to your life? Have you embraced him by faith? Is the only protection from God's wrath, is the only protection from God's punishment from sin, is the only way he can pass over you. Dear friends, these are just some of the ways that God's redemption of Israel in Exodus provides the language and the ideas of the greater redemption in Jesus Christ. May God bless his word to us. Amen.